There are very few things that investors can do that are free. But what about a podcast that delivers educational content on investing, saving strategies, financial planning, topical items of interest, and maybe even the odd wacky topic? Welcome to Free Lunch. Hosted by Greg Kremitsky and Colin Andrews of the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy, Free Lunch will bring listeners the firm's vast knowledge and experience in dealing with uncertainty to help clients achieve their vision through a deep understanding of what is important to them that requires planning, money, and time. Learn more and subscribe today at markets-work.com. Welcome back to the Free Lunch Podcast with Greg and Colin. And Greg, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about two things that will happen in everyone's lives, that being death and taxes. Roger. Those things obviously have to happen. They right? will. They will for sure. Can't escape either of them. But nope. today we're going to take a different turn and talk about something maybe a little bit taboo. And maybe part of this comes from Greg that last week was Valentine's Day. That's right. A big day in the relationship world. Yep. Right? How did you celebrate? Uh, well, we went out for dinner. Nice. And I actually read a statistic from DFA and it was like reservations for two people on yep. Valentine's Day yep. are 784% higher than any day around it. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. So what about you? What did you do? We celebrated Valentine's Day exactly the same way we celebrate every other day of our lives together. Just blissful it romance. Was, it was. Yeah. <laughs> Good. Well, today we're going to talk about something Valentine's related. We're going to talk about sex and money. What we won't actually get into the sex part is I don't think that's our area of expertise. I don't think you should be so hard on yourself. <laughs> but we're going to talk about what happens in couples' lives when it comes to sharing finances and financial information. Right on. Now, this work we're talking about today comes from a paper that a psychologist recently wrote, Dr. Joy Lear. I don't know if I'm pronouncing her name right, mm -hmm. but L-E-R-E. -E. I'm just going to go with Lear, okay? Sure. So Dr. Lear wrote this recent post, and she called it Bedrooms and Bank Accounts. And in the article, she talked about when couples are fighting or just not getting along in regards to their activities in the bedroom or their bank accounts, there's a deeper issue, and it's around power and control. So that's what we're going to talk about today. Sure. Why not, right? And we're talking about bank accounts. Yes. Okay, good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We're going to focus on the financial part. But right on. the power and control part that Dr. Lear talks about is having access to money and financial decisions and how that can set up a power dynamic, revealing some inequality in a relationship. Now, we're not psychologists or social workers. I'm not sure if you're aware of that, Greg. We're not trained as psychologists or social workers. That's a fact. I'm married to a social worker and my parents are social workers. Does that make me pretty close? And my wife studied psychology at university. So oh, well, there practically we go. there. Yep. But, but we've done a lot of work on our own when it comes to behavioral finance. And to me, this is just another area of that, right? Yep. So Dr. Lear says that your spending patterns can be used to reclaim a temporary semblance of power. That's pretty deep thought. I have to believe her, you know? I mean, she is the expert. Correct. Right. The next part she talks about is security. And Greg, at the core of most financial questions, the root cause or perhaps the root question, and we hear this all the time in different forms, is am I going to be okay? For sure. Right? Yeah. When have you heard that from clients? All the time. But of course, most frequently when the markets are down, when there's a lot of news in the markets, when there's a lot of volatility and a lot of bad news and the media can hype up because that's what sells, I guess we don't say doesn't sell papers anymore. That's what sells views. 
But yeah, when there's concern, when there's risk, or heightened risk in a sense that, okay, well, things have been going down, will they go down forever? Yeah. So when the stock market's down, or like last year, the stock market and the bond market were down, the questions are like, should we be doing something different? Right. Now, the root cause of that question is actually, am I going to be okay? So Dr. Lear says that this is a root cause of issues with couples around finances. She states that when a foundation of financial safety, and I'm quoting her here, when a foundation of financial safety is missing in a relationship, it can create elevated levels of stress and fear. Makes sense, right? She goes on to say there is this uneasy feeling that comes from fear about long-term implications from short-term spending or purchases. And we've seen this many times, you know, working with clients on their financial plans. Absolutely, yeah. Personally, I believe that in most relationships, whatever you define that is, there is usually a spender and a saver. And Greg, I don't know where you fit on that, but I fully admit I'm the spender in our family. Are you? Yeah. Yeah. I do. Yeah. I try to be thoughtful of it, but if there's one of us that's going to make a big purchase, it's going to be me. So you're saying it wasn't your wife that bought the stump from Survivor? No, I bought that. Right on. Yeah, but that was a charitable donation. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So so just to clarify what you're talking about, in season, I'm not really sure, Boston Rob wins Survivor, right? And they were auctioning off the stumps from Tribal Council. Right on. And you know the story. I do. So I'm telling others it. Well, you could buy one of the stumps from Tribal Council in a charity auction, raising money for... I don't know, something, cancer awareness or something. And so I bought one and it's in my house. Good for you. (laughs) (laughs) So yes, that is a good example of maybe a a larger purchase that my wife wouldn't have made, but I did. Do you also own one of the seats from the stands at the Montreal Forum? Greg, we're not going to get into my collection of things here (laughs) All right, okay, okay? fair enough. All right. So let's just talk about how you overcome the stress of maybe somebody spending more than the other on short-term purchases. And one way to overcome that is to update your financial plan regularly, right? And this works for both the spender and the saver. Seeing the longer-term implications of short-term purchases can get the spender to question their purchases going forward, right? And seeing the long-term numbers can help the saver see that maybe they're still on track, you know? So those are important things. You know, and I think that's really critical is just having that information because there's a lot of people out there that assume, oh, I've got lots of money or we've got lots of money and we can afford this. And they may not have all the facts. And if you don't have all the facts, you can't make smart decisions. Yeah, well, so another quick example. I remember my dad one time talking about a local kid who signed a NHL contract and was paid a million dollar signing bonus. And my dad's comments were, well, he's set for life. Yeah. <laughs> like, it's like, dad, like, or not. like 18 years old, you know, like what's a million dollars? It's only what? 20 years of $50,000 a year. Or worse yet, the first couple of Ferraris and it's gone. I don't think you can buy two Ferraris for a million dollars anymore. (laughs) Maybe two really old ones. I guess so. But anyways, so let's talk about autonomy and dependence. So how do couples deal with financial autonomy? So that financial autonomy being being able to make decisions on your own spending, right? Well, some couples have done it, so they keep everything secret from the other person. And we've seen couples that do this, separate bank accounts, separate statements, I've had couples that have had separate financial plans in some cases. Yeah, I don't quite understand it because at the end of the day, it's a joint pool, right? Or it will be at some point. That's right. But we worked with a guy at our old firm and I remember talking to him about it and he and his wife had separate bank accounts from the day they were married. And they were married for, at that point, like 30 years. 
and they knew nothing about each other's finances. It didn't make sense to me. Well, and some people are like that, and they manage that very well, you know, for good reasons. And other people might manage it for bad reasons. Like you say, if it's for secrecy or, or something like that, it's one thing. If it's because they've talked it out and they've decided that that's how they plan to manage their finances, well, good for them to each his own. But I think it's important that it, it's a decision, again, that's made together and with good reasons behind it. Yeah, but if you're doing financial planning together to achieve long-term goals, how can you actually create long-term goals together if you actually know nothing about each other's finances? Absolutely. Right? I'm going to go a little deeper on that. How can you create long-term trust if everything's a secret, right? I mean, that's the social worker coming out. That gets kind of deep, but isn't it true? Like, I personally think that in many couples, the financial tasks are usually divvied up. So, for example, in my household, my wife pays all the bills and I manage the investments. It doesn't mean that I don't know what the bills are, and it doesn't mean that she doesn't know what the investments are. We've just taken on different tasks, right? They're not secrets. So, okay, the next section that Dr. Lear talks about is significance and self-worth. So in a lot of couples, you may have one person who is the so-called breadwinner. And often we attach some sort of measurement to that idea of who makes the dough. And I don't care if that's the husband, wife, or whatever your relationship status is. But this is a slippery slope. Not sure we want to get into all the pitfalls in this area, but a common one may be around raising kids. If you have one spouse who has spent or is spending more of their time raising the kids or being the primary caregiver, and the other spouse has spent all of that time working, it can create a power struggle and imbalance, right? Sure, yeah. So, you know, there's a lot of work that was done, and I won't get too deep on it. You know, all those statistics about women making less than men in general, but there's also a lot of work that showed, well, there's actually a common reason for that, that if the woman is the primary caregiver in many cases, and she's giving up years of her career where the other partner is able to work those years and move ahead, well, it creates an income imbalance. Sure it does. Right? Yeah. Anyways, we could probably run a whole segment on that area. But again, we're not trained psychologists or social workers, so we won't go too deep on this one. Not professionally trained anyway. Nope. Kind of amateur <laughs> psychologists. We could workers. probably go on to like Coursera or <laughs> yes, something and do right. like a, yeah. a certificate course or something. But, but this is just more of a thought starter for people. So is the breadwinner valued more than the primary child raiser. And perhaps the question people could ask is, what is your relationship with your money? Yeah, you bet. Okay. The next section Dr. Lear talks about is trust. And we talked a little bit about this a few minutes ago. So if you're keeping secret accounts, how can you have a healthy relationship built around trust? I should rephrase that. Craig, if you're keeping secret accounts, how can you have a healthy relationship built around trust? See, doesn't that sound more like a question? That is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well said. <laughs> So you must dig deep and ask yourself, why is it important to you to keep this information secret? Yeah, exactly. Like, I don't get it, you know, (laughs) but I don't know. A a short personal story. We had a couple that we were friends with when we were younger, Greg, and the wife in the story, they're both good people, by the way. The wife in the story didn't keep any pictures of the couple in their photo albums. She just had very purposely not included her husband in the photo albums, Mm -hmm. which is which is weird. That is. You know, sounds weird to me, but yeah. Yeah. I said, well, why do you do this? And she said, well, if things don't work out, it'll be easier to split things up because she won't have to reorganize her photo albums. Or, or cut the pictures in half. <laughs> yeah. Well, guess what happened, Greg? Okay. They split yep. up. 
Uh, (laughs) Oh, boy. (laughs) But at least she didn't have to reorganize her photo album, right? Mm -hmm. Now, you could think of your financial accounts as that photo album. Wouldn't it be better to have a complete picture for your family unit, whatever that might be, right? Yeah. And again, trust is so important. And and I know you're going to get into this, but it's just the dialogue, you know, the understanding that two people in a relationship would have with regards to money. Because as you say, there's so many shared experiences, shared responsibilities from a financial standpoint. So yeah, it it just makes sense to me that whether you choose to keep your financial situation separate or commingled, as long as, you know, there's got to be open dialogue. I would actually go even a little further. There's a, a guy we know, won't mention his name, when he and his wife bring home leftovers, Oh, yes. <laughs> it's very specific in their fridge whose <laughs> leftovers are whose. And if the other partner was to eat the other person's, I don't know, piece of pizza, yeah. <laughs> there could be hell to pay. It's interesting. You know, it kind of reminds me of being in university, you know, and sharing a house, you know, and having your own food in the fridge and don't touch my food. I sort of get that at the university level. You know, maybe in a marriage, it might work for some people. I don't personally get it. Yeah, but I mean, in university, it's like... <laughs> You're fighting over your uh, itchy band noodles, right? <laughs> like, I swear to God, I had five, five things of itchy band noodles in the cupboard, and now I only have three. What happened? That's right. Right? Yeah. Okay, we're getting totally off topic, but it's kind of fun. <laughs> Communication. So Dr. Lear talks about how some people will use spending behavior as a passive-aggressive attempt to express anger or a plea for attention. Yep. Kind of makes sense, yep. right? That spending can be used as an attempt to fill the void of an unmet need. I'm going to tell you, Greg, my parents are going to be really impressed that we're touching on this subject, seeing as how they're social workers. Exactly. And usually we talk about the stock market and the bond market, right? Yep. Yep. But this idea of an unmet need, I can see that. I mean, in our world, that could be like a midlife crisis. Sure. Right? And, you know, I've been through that. I bought a sports car, right? Had it for a little while. Here's the problem with that purchase, Greg. It was fun for like a day, Mm -hmm. you know, and then it just became something that I needed to take care of. Yeah. And I didn't want to do that. It didn't bring me any happiness. Well, that's the thing, you know, in a lot of these purchases or spending to fill the void of an unmet need or something, they don't generally change your level of happiness. In fact, there's been a lot of research on that that just shows that happiness is, there's a different level of happiness, you know, base level of happiness for most people. And you can satisfy that for a very short term, like buying your sports car. But in the end, your happiness kind of drops back to its its normal level. I want to take it back to stock market. Are people really happier if the stock market is up 15%? versus down 15%? Yeah, I mean, good question. There's a happiness part of the basic desire to get more, whether it's a gambling kind of instinct or just a comfort or a security instinct, but it makes them happier for, again, a short period of time, and then that becomes the base level. And then if the stock market drops down a little bit, but not all the way back to where it was, they become unhappy. And we go through that a lot. We talk to people about, okay, never mind what happened in the last month or three months. How have things changed, you know, three to five years for you? And and that's where we can go back to a financial plan and put things in perspective. Because yeah. it's very easy to get caught up in short-term and short-term sources of happiness or sources of despair. Yeah, so again, back to that example, if the stock market was up 15% or down 15%, as long as you were able to point back to your financial plan, 
that even when it was down 15%, you were still ahead of your goal? Would the fact that the stock market being up or down actually drive happiness? Or would the fact of being on track to meet your goal, regardless of the market being up or down, drive happiness? I would think the latter should be the main driver. Yeah. And so we do our best to communicate that with people when when they talk about how's the stock market doing, right? Or they'll say, how's the market doing? Well, first of all, you got to figure out which market they're talking about. Because in an extreme example, I had somebody come in and say, he was quite depressed. He said, the market's down so much. And it was at a time when the stock market actually was up. And I said, well, which market are you talking about? He said, the oil market. I was like, well, that's not really the market. That's yeah. like, it's one <laughs> sector, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. Or last year, the oil market was up quite a bit. The stock market was down. So again, which market is somebody talking about, right? But then being able to relate that back to, but what are you trying to achieve? And I know we're kind of going on on this point, but I think it's important. That's right. And it ties together as you're talking about how couples view and manage their finances, because it's important for people to be on the same page that way. And we see differences. And there are some things we see in our business very often, not always, but very often, as you say, the husband has been the breadwinner or has been the one that's looked after the finances. And they tend to be much more Maybe they've been through the ups and downs of the markets and their spouses have not paid a lot of attention. And then when the spouses look and see, oh, the market's down or we're down $30,000 in the last month, I mean, it can be very shocking and very unnerving for that person or vice versa. You know, you might see the situation where the person who follows it daily is more unnerved by it. And so I think it gets back to that having a common understanding among spouses whose financial lives are entwined pretty tightly with each other's for them to share a common view, if nothing else. Mm -hmm. And as you say, there's always situations where one partner is the spender and one partner is the saver. And that can cause a lot of stress if it's not dealt with. So regardless of market volatility, things like that, much easier to deal with when people are sharing a common view. Yeah. And there's also the law of large numbers that comes into play. So in your example, if you have the one spouse that maybe doesn't really pay attention to the portfolio that much, and then they happen to look at a statement because the market's down like last year, and they say, oh my God, we lost $100,000 last year. And you say, yeah, but you have like $5 million versus losing $100,000 when you have $200,000. Oh, yes. That's a very different experience. Well, and right? I, I remember having that exact discussion with a client and his spouse years ago, like 25 years ago. And the spouse who didn't follow all that closely said, oh my God, we're down $30,000. That's more money than we made in a whole year. Well, and that's true, looking back to the 1980s, but because she had been out of the financial world and not paying attention for many years, to her, that was a year's worth of salary. And of course, at the time that it happened, it wasn't. It was a relatively small amount of their holdings, but to her, it was extremely meaningful. Greg, I'm going to say this. Are we recommending that people do a financial plan? Yes, Colin, we are. Are we recommending that they also take that data from the financial plan and make it something more useful? Yes. Like maybe a goals-based report or something to that effect? Yes. Greg, are we recommending that the CM group work with people on creating these financial plans, constructing goals-based reports, and showing them those on a regular basis? 
Absolutely. And we're also, Colin, yes? are we recommending that we involve yes. both spouses <laughs> in the oh. whole financial planning process? Oh, sorry, I jumped ahead. <laughs> yes, I think that is an issue that we've run into over the years is that, like in my example of divvying up household tasks, there can be an issue if something happens to one spouse and the other one hasn't had to deal with those things before, right? So... Anyways, we won't go on and on about that. Let's just wrap it up here with this. In conclusion, well, let's just say that we're never going to get a conclusion on this topic, Greg. Oh, good conclusion. (laughs) Thanks for wrapping it up so neatly. The bedrooms and bank accounts topic is something that individuals and couples need to work through. So if you're having financial conflict, maybe this is a signal and a symptom. Maybe it's a red flag that something's wrong, but it does not specify what that is. If I go home tonight and Leanna has reorganized the photo albums. You're in trouble. And hers. Yeah. I will come back to the office and get some boxes ready. Right. Right. <laughs> right on. So you got to dig deep. You must get to the root cause. I can tell you that I get my root cause as a self-described spender in my relationship. I'm being pretty vulnerable by sharing this, by the way. When we were growing up, we didn't have a lot of extra money for things. And that's not that we didn't have food or anything like that. There just wasn't a lot of extra money to go around. And I grew up around some pretty affluent families and saw the toys, by toys, I mean like cars and clothes and things that my classmates got. And if I had to dig deep on myself, I can see why I do spend a little bit more as an adult than my wife. And perhaps that comes from an area of envy that I grew up with, right? Again, (laughs) being pretty vulnerable here, but I understand it. And I know that sounds kind of cold maybe sometimes to say I'm a spender, but I understand it. And so the whole point of saying that is just to get people to think about it. Sure. Right? Yep. Well said. Now, I will tell you this. Trips these days, I don't know about your experience, but people go on a lot of trips. And I was out of COVID, right? Yes. I remember in high school, many years ago, extensive trips were so rare. And I've shared this with you before. One girl I went to high school with went to Cancun for spring break. It was such a rare event. Her nickname became Cancun for like the next two years. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And listen, everyone has stories, but I can tell you that our trips usually consisted of driving from Regina, Saskatchewan to Vancouver, you know, to visit grandparents. And that was the extent of it. (laughs) We did not fly anywhere for vacations, none of that kind of stuff. And that would have been pre-Cocahalla. That was pre-Cocahalla. Otherwise, your nickname would become Cocahalla. Exactly. Yeah, I might start calling you that anyways. All right, well, I think that wraps it up. What do you think? Let's end it there and we'll pick it up next week. Sounds good. Thank you for listening to the Free Lunch Podcast hosted by the CM Group at CIBC Wood Gundy. Do subscribe to this podcast to get more realistic insight on investing or to connect with one of our talented partners, please head on over to markets-work.com. We'll see you next time on the Free Lunch Podcast. The CIBC logo and CIBC Private Wealth Management are registered trademarks of CIBC. If you are currently a CIBC Wood Gundy client, please contact your investment advisor. CIBC Private Wealth Management consists of services provided by CIBC and certain of its subsidiaries, including CIBC Wood Gundy, a division of CIBC World Markets, Inc. CIBC Private Wealth Management is a registered trademark of CIBC used under license. Wood Gundy is a registered trademark of CIBC World Markets, Inc. Colin Andrews and Greg Kraminski are investment advisors with CIBC Wood Gundy. This information, including any opinion, is based on various sources believed to be reliable, 
but its accuracy cannot be guaranteed and is subject to change. CIBC and CIBC World Markets, Inc., their affiliates, directors, officers, and employees may buy, sell, or hold a position in securities of a company mentioned herein, its affiliates or subsidiaries, and may also perform financial advisory services, investment banking or other services for, or have lending or other credit relationships with the same. CIBC World Markets, Inc. and its representatives will receive sales commissions and or a spread between bid and ask prices if you purchase, sell, or hold the securities referred to above. CIBC World Markets, Inc., 2023.